My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Laura Cuthbert. The history that most of us have the opportunity to learn tends to erase and downplay the voices, the stories, and the struggles of people who are marginalized in various ways. We hear more about bosses than workers, more about white people than black people, indigenous people, and people of color, more about cisgender men than cis women or trans and gender diverse people, more about elites than everyone else. This inequity and injustice manifests not only at the level of the stories we hear, but also in terms of the sources that are readily accessible upon which we might base stories. This is true in multiple aspects of how museums, archives, and historians often relate to sources emerging from the lives of marginalized people. Sometimes they are neglected and ignored. Sometimes they are stolen and disrespected. Laura Cuthbert has always been interested in the past. As a teen, she worked in the museum in the community where she grew up. Even then, she knew that something was off about it all that there were objects there that belonged to indigenous nations that no museum should have, and that the stories told in the exhibits left out a great deal. Yet she still loved history, and she ended up going into museum sciences and then anthropology. In 2011, she and a group of friends started a project called Populous Map. It originally started out as road trips to ghost towns in British Columbia. They investigated the buildings, the objects left behind, the plants that grew there, and they documented it. At a certain point, they realized that in many of these places, they were seeing evidence of black people, indigenous people, and people of color in these communities, even though the dominant extant local histories of these areas largely exclude such people. Over time, the project evolved into its current form. It went, as its website describes it, from asking the basic question, who is missing, to a much more involved set of questions. Quote, How may we make diverse, private, and unknown archives as accessible and researchable as our primary white settler archives? How do we do this while maintaining autonomy, privacy, and reciprocity in the histories we gather? End quote. Today, the cycle of their relationship with the community typically begins with a visit one summer just to get to know people. They'll develop a sense of the community, and who, in formal and informal ways, is holding the community's history, and find out what people in the community might want digitized so it can be both preserved and made more broadly accessible. The next year, they return to do the digitizing. They come with an old ambulance that carries in the back of it a set of massive scanners, each one six feet by three feet. They digitize documents, artifacts, stories, whatever they can. Most of what they collect, they catalog, tag, and make accessible and easily searchable online. Some of that is via the interactive map and timeline on their website, but Cuthbert has found that tool to be less useful than she'd hoped, and more often uses Google Drive to distribute material to people who contact them. Perhaps most importantly, their work does not stop with digitizing and circulating material. They prioritize consent culture in their work, as well as giving back to the communities they work with. 
It's crucial to Cuthbert to develop early on a sense of how their presence can be made most useful to the community that they're in, and then to do what they can to provide that. They have a number of trips planned for this summer, and are committed to the ongoing work of building relationships with communities and then collecting and digitizing material. In the future, Cuthbert also envisions the project working more closely with teachers and school systems to bring the histories that they're preserving to young people. I speak with Cuthbert about marginalized histories, about grassroots archiving, and about the Populous Map Project. My name is Laura Geisigott Cuthbert, and I run something called Populous Map. The idea is we're looking at how to bring digital archives and personal, private, autonomous archives into public hands. That means that rural areas, lots of places all over BC have archives and artifacts and knowledge that people not only in cities, but just universally don't have access to. The goal of Populous Map is to make things as public and researchable and accessible as possible, while also looking at diversity and autonomy and anti-racism and everything else that goes into museum sciences. There's so many reasons as to how someone gets interested in history, but I also know that I just had a basic interest in history. It's something I've always been really delighted by and interested in. I ended up going into work at museum when I was about 15 years old in New Westminster. There were many days where I was just like sitting in the basement of that museum and archiving pieces and realizing that the things that were in that museum don't belong to that museum. They shouldn't be there. Some things we come across, it was like, oh, nobody knows this is here. It could be so significant for a nation or for different people who don't know where it ended up after it was stolen or don't know the next step of it. So I guess kind of growing that like a young bias towards loving history, but also hating it because it erases so much of people and who we are. So that's where it started. And then I went into museum sciences and later on into anthropology and a few other places. But almost the goal of looking at history and seeing where it isn't just. I knew that I would never be able to work in a museum <laughs> after that. So. so before we talk about Populous Map itself, lay out for listeners who maybe haven't thought about these questions before, what kinds of things get left out and decentered in historical accounts and in the institutional preservation of materials? And how does that erasure take place? At its core, I mean, it's the same reasons that people are left out of society now. It's classism, it's racism, it's the patriarchy. It's all these different systems that affect people. And also, there's something in BC that's definitely around the rural divide and how people were displaced and dispersed. British Columbia, of course, is mostly unceded, and so it's not signed for. There's very, very few treaties, and there's only a few modern treaties. But it means also that Indigenous people over time have been displaced in horrific ways. I mean, think about like there's certain dates that Indigenous pick up on as the years of atrocities. I think a lot about the McKenna McBride Act of 1913 to 1916 and all the research that went into not only displacing people from the reserves that were already not working, then like displaced a second time from their land. There's also a lot of erasure in like the entire missing generations for lots of different nations, not only from residential school, but also for folks who settled in BC, but also were forced to settle because of the colonization that was happening in their own places. I think of the Chinese diaspora, especially, who were affected by Borden's laws between 1920 and 1948. She's referring here to what today is called the Chinese Exclusion Act, which banned most Chinese immigration to Canada in those years. So there's a lot of erasure because there's an entire missing generation of Chinese settlers who would have documented and did document, but there was no one left to preserve it. There's also, because Black settlements were mostly displaced and kind of spread out, just like they were in Hogan's Alley in Vancouver. And Hogan's Alley was a historically Black neighborhood in Vancouver destroyed by redevelopment in the 1970s. That happened hundreds of other times across BC as well. 
there's hundreds of Chinatowns, there's hundreds of black settlements, there were hundreds of Japanese settlements all over the place, but also because of internment during the 1940s. Uh, that, of course, is a reference to the internment of Japanese Canadians during the Second World War. All those like core communities that were really obvious communities, so reserves, black settlements, Chinatowns and Japanese settlements, everything was dispersed. So we end up finding those places a lot too. And it's not that they're not known, it's just that people haven't been there in a while. So we use those campsites and then we also connect with people who are living, who are descendants or have some ties to the place as well. How did the Populist Map Project get started? It started up in 2011. And it started out by us going into ghost towns mostly, just a group of friends here and there doing those road trips. And when we'd show up, we'd start noticing different plants that would show up in every place. Or we'd notice different framings and cuttings on cabins and how they were assembled. We started tracking and documenting that and then started realizing that all those things meant that people were there, but especially BIPOC people, so Black, Indigenous people of color, lots of different people who were completely erased from any historic timelines in the local municipalities and the local museums. So we started tracking where we were finding those things. And when we'd have you know, a plant that was significant to maybe like a Chinese elder, then we'd ask about who lives there. And we started asking questions, we started getting directed to the people who were still around, but that maybe wouldn't have been considered as a part of the history without us asking specifically about what was left. And it slowly over time turned more into a project that was less about our own curiosity and our own research, but something that was bigger scale that we realized that everyone in BC or what we call BC should have access to our true history. So we started building a digitized timeline to do that. And we do that through community organizing. Who's involved in the project? They're my favorite people. <laughs> There's about 400 volunteers now, which has been a huge change of the last year. We started asking for more help and then immediately got it. And we're kind of scrambling to figure out what to do with it. The types of people are a little bit of everything. I'd say very few of them come from history or museum backgrounds, which is exciting to me. It's so exciting to bring together people who, who maybe aren't as academic or aren't in that sort of viewing of history. We have a lot of geologists who you know, want to go into environmental sciences, but then realize they couldn't change it from the inside. We have a lot of filmmakers and people who appreciate culture and arts and creativity. There's a lot of people who just love a road trip. <laughs> and there's a lot of people who are really into technology. But I think that the base of it is people who really value relationships and value just who people in these places that we're meeting are. We do a thing with the volunteers where we go in one year and we meet everyone, we build relationships, and the year after we come back and digitize and go through anything that the town needs to document within their history. So that kind of takes a special kind of volunteer who's interested in doing both sides, not only the hands-on technical part, but the real relational part, which is also pretty technical at times. So today, what does your process look like for working with a community? I think it's changed a few different times, but I think a really helpful example would be Two summers ago, we went to Ocean Falls and we met a wonderful knowledge keeper there who had kept the entire town in a set of scrapbooks. These 14 scrapbooks have everything from family photos to the menus from the local hotel to just like fish bones, everything you can imagine. And the reason was because her town had been taken from her when it was burnt down in the 1970s or 80s by the provincial government who didn't really want to be like a company town owner anymore. There was this hard reality that that history would also be lost, but it was such a temporary town also that the history would be lost. Plus, there would be no one who would maybe be able to go back to it. Ocean Falls is still there. There's still people there, but the connections were changed. And so we went, we had digitized those books. They're all available through Populous Map. 
but the next piece was trying to figure out what she really valued and what she really needed. And so because it was getting harder and harder for her to stay up there during the winters, she also then had taken a fall and couldn't get back there during the summers. And all of a sudden she wasn't able to go back to Ocean Falls at all. And so we asked her what she needed and she had said that there was a cemetery sign that she wanted to have built based around her own knowledge and her own experience. She'd basically gone through the entire cemetery with a shish kebab skewer and like pulled up all the names and, and documented where everything was. So we put up the cemetery signs last summer, backed up in Ocean Falls. That's sort of one of the processes. But we also did that over the course of a month. The first summer we were there for two weeks and the next year we were there digitizing for three or four weeks. And the week, year after that, we finally got back and did a bit more reciprocity. Kind of a start to end with that one. And how do you connect with communities you want to work with to begin with? The same way that we can connect, I guess, in any place, we figure out where the central hubs are. So we end up in a lot of bars and uh, at gas stations, at post offices, at small restaurants, basically anywhere we can pull off that we know that lots of people will attend. So we try and reach out ahead of time and figure out sort of community pillars are. We also use Facebook groups a lot. Most small towns have a group, so that helps. We try and build some sort of understanding of who we are before we get there. We want people to feel really autonomous about their history, especially because history is so often skewed and so often just taken. And so, yeah, that's how we show up. But it really does mean like when we get there, we buy a round of beers and talk with people and we try and connect relationally before we do anything else. You mentioned one example where the knowledge keeper that you worked with had the scrapbooks that she'd been keeping. What other kinds of ways do you engage with and unearth and discover the histories in these communities? There's so many things that go into it. If there's nobody left at a place, part of it is plants. So we use ethnobotany quite a bit. We use building sites and trying to understand how things are built to infer who built them. We use old photos and we can try and connect ahead of time with people who might have been in those photos. We use a lot of geological records and mining keeping records. We use HBC Post records to figure out who was going in and out. Sort of in a limitless way, but also some of my favorite days are because our volunteers have come from so many different ways of thinking like the way that they find things is always going to challenge what we're taught in museum sciences or in anthropology. So a really nice example is there was a month where we were looking for this one specific knife and it was the knife and blade of Chief Quay, which is up north. And we could find bits and pieces about it, but we couldn't find an actual proper story. And I knew that part of it was spelling. There was a few different things going against us just trying to find it. It's been spelled so differently so many times. But finally, someone just looked on YouTube Titan Chief Quay, the way they thought it might be spelled. And there was a guy at the museum talking about it, just like being interviewed. So it's funny how we went through every academic record we could. We went through, you know, all these journals and through everything. But we didn't think of just doing like, what would people do? Talk more about your process of digitizing material. We have a set of scanners that are six feet long and three feet wide. So we can scan really massive pieces. Sometimes that means plants or articles or full newspapers. Lots of different things. But the reason we digitize is because there's a few reasons. The main one is we want people to be able to access it no matter where they are. But also a lot of the places that we go to are starting to be more and more affected by fires or more affected by other issues. So having proper records of those artifacts is really important for other people in the future to be able to look at, but also just people now to be able to access. Because, you know, we we went to Telegraph Creek last summer. It's a good 28-hour drive. And we are going back this summer and digitizing. So the process is bringing our full scanners, bringing a good amount of people and just setting up shop for about a week inside of museums. Or We drive a big ambulance and we use the ambulance to scan out of the back of as well because uh, it's all electrified. 
it's a process. The, the main goal, though, is we digitize on location so that people don't lose their artifacts for a few months. There's a lot of trauma around people borrowing things and never bringing them back. So we do it while we're there. And how do you label and catalog it all so that you're able to make sense of it and so that people not from that community are able to make sense of it and use it? We do pretty simple cataloging. We actually just sort everything on Google Drive. That's been the most effective way to get it out to people. We also use a type of scanner called a Caesar scanner, which is CZUR. And Caesar scanners automatically imprint like a code per page. And so if we're digitizing a book, for example, as you flip the pages, the scanner is automatically assigning a code to it. And it realizes that it's all the same book and creates it as one zip file. So there's little small things like that. And then we label things by category of interest. So if we're doing environmental history, then we put it under the category of environment. So we do like a tagging system as well so that people who don't know the name of something in history, then they'd still be able to find it later on. So say you want to research women's matriarch history that's about water sovereignty between 1930 and 1935, then you could select all those tags and it would come up with women who maybe did that work at that time. And you could also do it by geolocation as well. What approaches do you use to collecting and preserving people's stories as opposed to documents and objects? We believe in oral history as equal as any other history in documentation. Because of that, we offer to digitize oral histories. We'll take voice recordings or we'll do video if people are interested in that. And then we'll post that as well to our Google Drive. But sometimes it means sitting and writing out a story with people. Sometimes it means like circling points on a map that they show us. There's lots of different ways we can do that. Also, a lot of those stories too, they don't belong public. Like they shouldn't be public. They're just pieces for the town. And so we also do digitization of local stories that are only for that place. So if someone has a story that's specific about that template, then we'll help them by putting it into videos so their you know, nieces and nephews can access it or their grandchildren or whoever else is happening to need that story. But then we'll delete it from our own records. We'll give it to them in all the record ways that they might need. So DVD, sometimes VHS even, and we'll walk away from it. I think that those are actually kind of the coolest days. We don't walk away with a story, but we walk away with a story being told still. Tell me more about why building relationships with communities is such a central part of the project's work. Relationships basically mean that we access a full picture, or a fuller picture at least. If we didn't build relationships first, we wouldn't know half the history we know. Because people have taken the time to realize what we were about, learning more than what the museum tells us. We're not, we're not tourists who are just showing up looking for what a museum timeline might include. We're looking at what's here, who's missing, what's here, what's missing, and trying to have deep conversations about that. And sometimes those are really hard conversations for communities to have. There's obviously a deep sadness when you speak about things like internment in a town that used to have a really big Japanese population that isn't there anymore. So those relationships can overtake any sort of erasure. Like people are more interested in sharing time with us. And because we build reciprocity into those relationships, I think people are also excited to see what we can pull off. I mean, sometimes it's as simple as like we help people garden while we're there. We have a community feast. We do different things like that. But at its core, I think we wouldn't have those stories with our relationships. What are some of the other ways that you ensure that the communities themselves benefit from the work that you do? Part of it is we ask. We build a lot of consent culture into what we do. So we check in with people. We make sure that they're still feeling okay about the process. We, yeah, we go through a lot of questions before we ever kick out a camera or anything like that. The other piece is just really checking out on what community wants or needs at the time. That can look different. You know, sometimes the community is a thousand people, but sometimes it's just one or two people. And so 
knowing more about their dependent needs is going to be really different than a group of a thousand. So in Ocean Falls, we have a cemetery science. And uh, Telegraph Creek, when we go back there this summer, it'll be just digitizing one collection that was noted a few different times by different people that is really significant and should be out there more. I think without building real reciprocity and real trust or relationship into that, we wouldn't know also what the next step is to go back for. So in the course of doing this work, are there any stories that you've encountered that have been particularly surprising or that have really stuck with you? I think I have kind of a personal story with this one. One of the things that first got me so interested in the journey of history, and it kind of keeps coming back to poke me, is the story of Frank Gott. Frank Gott is a little Watula man. He was murdered in 1930. He was a sharpshooter, and he entered the First World War. He ended up having many medals of honor. He was very well decorated. And when he came back, he wasn't allowed back on his reserve because he lost his status and gained Canadian citizenship. And I wouldn't say that's a gain. It affected his life. He lost his family, he lost everything. And he kept having these fights with the local game warden about what he could catch and what he could hunt. And so somehow there was a scuffle and he ended up killing the game warden. And then there was a three-day manhunt for Frank Gott in a place that's now called Gott Valley. Frank Gott, though, I feel like comes up in my research all the time. I'll sometimes be reading like an NBC article from the early 1900s and Frank Gott will be mentioned Frank Gott's <laughs> kill toll that month or something, which would be like, he killed three bears and got 80 caribou and just uh, these massive, massive scales. But Frank Gott keeps coming back. A few summers ago, I was driving up near Pemberton and I pulled over into a campsite and I realized that the creek bed that I was on was Gott Creek. And I walked up the hill and there was just like a single monument to him. And I think there's a lot of stories that are like Frank Gott's where this person is so affected by everything, by every system. It's all Adam until he's killed. I think history comes around like that, but I feel like Frank God's story keeps coming up for me. There's also the people who we meet now. Last year, we were working on a film called Hayashi Studio, and it was about the Japanese town site in Cumberland, and specifically the Japanese photographer Hayashi. And we posted a photo on Instagram, and within a day, someone had messaged on the photo. It was a photo from Hayashi Studio that the person in the photo was their grandfather. And so when we reached out to them, we were able to bring them into the filming of Hayashi. So Doug Ayohi joined us that way. And his family were the school teachers of the Japanese town site before internment. So there is all these moments where there's like a lot of serendipity involved. And I feel like I've found a lot of beauty in that. But also, BC is not a big place. And so when we look for history, we... I guess, find it through pulling over near Pemberton or through Instagram or however we access it. But I feel like those moments keep coming up. I think there's hundreds and hundreds of them. How do you fund this work? Funding's not simple. It's all volunteer-led. It's all organizing. Right now, we fund it through simple Facebook fundraisers. We also have a small Patreon account that we get a few hundred dollars from per month. But yeah, by the end of the year, we only spend about $20,000 every year on Populous Maps. I'm hoping one day we can fund it a little bit better so we can like, add to it, especially to the equity of who can join us right now. I'd say most of our volunteers are pretty middle class. There's also a bit more trouble in how things like digitization projects are funded in the world for oral history, especially. Not a lot of main funders will fund Indigenous-led oral history, so that's always a factor. And there's also not a lot of people doing digitization in BC. There's, there are groups like Indigitization and a lot of local museums are starting to get onto it, but it's not something that there's like a group that does it. Very little is digitized right now. Do you have a sense of how the populousmap.com website is getting used? I'd say probably not very much yet. 
The website isn't super helpful, to be honest. It's beautiful. It does some of what we want it to do. I'd say our Google Drive is used a lot more. It's usually people reaching out saying, hey, did you go to this place? Do you know anything about it? Then we can release files to it there. Slowly but surely, we're uploading to the website, but I feel like the website I thought would be the thing that we were trying to work towards, but it turns out that the Google Drive is a lot faster for us to use and upload to. So I'm not sure whether the website itself is actually the tool that we expected it to be. What's your larger sense, whether it's practical for Populous Map at the moment or not, of ways that the archiving and the historical work that you're doing could be made more broadly available and brought to more people? Everything we do is open source. I mean, data is worth money, but anything we do can be shared. It just means that people have to know that we exist, which is also a problem. So I'm not totally sure the full journey of it yet. We're working on doing some curriculum development right now with some different schools. And so we're doing more of like a youth-led program in the next year. We'll see how that goes. But as for people, I think that the better access point, especially in Vancouver, has been doing public talks and public events and different things that are around the idea of history. So we do these talks at different breweries and we've done talks at creative coworker space, a few different places, sharing BC history through like a timeline slideshow that are kind of interactive and fun. But for the towns that we actually meet with and interact with, we try and find out how we can share back that same resource with them. So sometimes digital resource doesn't actually work for people. It doesn't make other people access it more or less. So it means that like for Telegraph Creek for the summer, for instance, when we bring that back, we'll put out a notice to everyone who uses like the tag Taltan or uses the tag Telegraph Creek or anything like that in Facebook and through other social media. And we'll scrape that and we'll send them a link, just letting them know that it's available. So people, especially who aren't at home, can still access it. But yeah, I, I don't know really an answer for that one yet. What are your future plans for the Populous Map project? I don't know where it will go in the next few years completely yet, but I do have some hunches. I think we're going to be going more into the school system and more into working alongside teachers to offer these stories because they also don't know what they don't know. They don't have access to that basic history. Then for the next few months, we're going to be in Telegraph Creek and into Whitehorse looking at digitizing from the relationships that we made last summer and also trying to get more rural and northern stories into some of the school curriculums that we're working on already. There's also a lot of small trips. We're doing a trip to Cortez Island, and we're doing a trip to Tassis and a few other places come the fall. Small towns, I feel like, archive in different ways, and they have different relationships with each other. So I'm hoping that by using small towns that already have museums that want to reach out and are reaching out to us, that we'll be able to kind of start at a different place than who's missing. And instead, we'll start with sort of what's missing from history with those people. And so maybe we'll do some facilitation around that in those chat sites as well. I'm not sure yet. But yeah, lots of different little trips. And just maintaining relationships we already have and treating them with their respect and the amazement that they deserve because they're really lovely. You have been listening to my interview with Laura Cuthbert about the Populous Map Project. To learn more about it, go to populousmap.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. 